0: Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza.
1: And I'm Abdul Latif. And we are here today with Dr. Osman Khan, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, Professor of Contemporary Islamic Religion Society and Professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. His research covers Islam and politics, Islam and modernity, Islam in West Africa, in Sufism, and he also happens to be my professor, so I'm very excited to talk with him today.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast, Professor Khan. Uh,
2: Thank you very much, Abdurrahman. Thank you, Shirin, for inviting me. It's really a great pleasure to uh, speak to you today.
1: Today, we're here to talk about Dr. Khan's book published last year, Beyond Timbuktu, An Intellectual History of West Africa. This book covers the inception of Islam in West Africa, development, the development of scholarly genres and networks from the earliest times, the colonial period, and even into the present day. I guess with that, we'd like to launch into the first question, Dr. Khan. How did Islam get started in West Africa?
2: Amri, min Qawli. How did Islam get into West Africa? Perhaps I would like to answer the question of how Islam uh, got into Africa first. Mm-hmm. Because it's very important to know that you know, Islam is by no means a foreign religion. Uh, as early as 615, that was even before the Hijrah, The prophet, peace be upon him, sent his companions, uh, some of his companions to Abyssinia, where they were the first to introduce, uh, you know, Islam, even before it spread to Medina and to the rest of the Arabian Peninsula and other neighboring countries. So I want to really emphasize the fact that, you know, we are not new to Islam. Now, as far as West Africa is concerned, we know that, by the year 46 of the hijra when Uqba ibn nafi was uh, uh, penetrating the you know regions of of uh, kawar and and fezzan in uh, present day libya you know islam was introduced to uh, neighboring countries in west africa like the kanem burnu so in kanem burnu islam has a very long history we know that islam continued also to spread uh, from north africa to other parts of west africa so uh, the first people to convert were merchants who worked who traded with the arabs and uh, and these were the first to con- uh, to convert and later rulers also kings started to convert mm-hmm. at, at the turn of the 11th century a few were kings Converted, including that of Takrur. Takrur is in, in today's northern Senegal, in what is it, Senegal today. And uh, they have been going to make for centuries. That's why most people from uh, West Africa were known as Takruri, because uh, you know of the very early conversion of Takrur. So we know also that in Ghana, which was one of the earliest African West African states. They were Muslim communities by the 11th century. Al Bakri, the Arab uh, uh, historian, wrote in his Kitab al Masalik wal Mamalik mm-hmm. that in the 11th century, in the capital of Ghana, there were two cities one a Muslim and another non Muslim city. And there were 12 mosques and one Friday mosque there. They were salaried imam. They were muazzins. And by the 11th century, we know for sure that, you know, Islam was being institutionalized in West Africa. Mm. But the spread was obviously very slow. And we can, you know, come back to that. But what is clear is that, you know, Islam was introduced in Eastern Africa, in Ethiopia, before the hijrah and in the first century of the uh, hijra islam was introduced in some regions in africa from north africa and then by the 11th century a few rulers have converted to islam and even their uh, some of their populations have converted Although you know conversion to Islam remained limited, and Islam was for many centuries an urban phenomenon.
0: Mm-hmm. So this um, this phenomenon of traders, those coming in contact with traders, is actually really reminiscent to me of the Indian Ocean world. But something really amazing about your book is that you draw both on historical chronicles and really connect that up with the scholarly production. Mm-hmm. Could you map out for us some of the earliest scholarly networks that you talk about in your book?
2: Yes, I can. I certainly can. You know, the Saharan desert, which often is assumed to be to have been a barrier, was in fact a bridge. Mm. People have exchanged, you know, ideas. Uh, books have circulated through the Sahara. Scholars from North Africa were coming to the Bilad Sudan. The Bilad Sudan meaning. Uh, you know, uh, West Africa, essentially. But the question is, what attracted them first? I think what attracted Arabs to West Africa was the gold. Mm -hmm. It was one of, you know, a major supply of gold. And uh, from the 8th to the 15th century, approximately two-thirds of, you know, gold circulating in global markets came from West Africa. That's and, and that is what attracted many Arabs. And that's why, you know, they wrote, they, they produced several maps, you know, or trade routes providing information of, you know, the distance in, between different trading centers. And uh, so 75, you know, were produced. So it was uh, through these uh, trade networks that also books circulated, that ideas circulated ulama came to from mm-hmm. uh, north africa and other parts of the muslim world to west africa and also west africans also traveled to other parts of the muslim world so that's mm-hmm. how the scholarly networks were were constituted and obviously later on by the 8th century by the sorry by the 17th and 18th century a critical mass of uh, africans trained in arabic language were already you know Mm -hmm. trying to uh, to spread this religion and by the 11th century exchange intensified a great deal because they were also missionaries or people who wanted to spread islam while doing the trade at the same time
1: timbuktu has existed in the public imaginary globally as like a center for learning and I know the title of your book is Beyond Timbuktu. So you're making a commentary that a lot of studies have focused too much on that one particular area without moving beyond. So what were some of the other centers of learning that were around and why were they also important?
2: Okay, let me start with the cover of the book, which features the mosque of Jenne,
0: And listeners can find this on our website.
2: Right. And Jenne is uh, another city in, uh, in Mali, uh, which was also very prominent. And uh, it was also an important center of Islamic scholarship. And uh, one of the authors of the Chronicles of Timbuktu named Abdurrahman al-Saadi, is the author of the Tariq al-Sudan, mm-hmm. he wrote that, you know, uh, the ulama, the scholars in Jenni numbered 4,200 this was in the sixth century. By the time that the of of Islam, the the, the sultan, the sultan converted to Islam, there were 4,200 ulama, which means Jenne or in northern Mali also was a major center of learning. I will give you some more examples. For example, in kanem Burnu, I mentioned that you know Kanem. Islam was introduced there in Kanem-Borno as early as you know the first century of Islam when mm-hmm. Uqba bin Nafa and in, in his troop were, were you know conquering these these areas. Now in Kanem-Borno, uh, Islamic tradition of learning developed very very early. Scholars from Kanem-Borno were uh, traveling to other parts of the Muslim world to to study and we know one of them known as abu ishaq uh, yaqub al-kanami who wrote very impressive uh, uh, poems to, to, to when he met the first al uh, Al-Muhar sultan that was in the 11th century in the, in the in the 13th century yes and also there are other pieces of evidence you know showing that kanem burno was a major center mm-hmm. in uh, the mid uh, 13th century there was a hostel for uh, students and pilgrims from kanem in Cairo oh. in Al Azhar called Riwaq Al Barnawi. Mm-hmm. As you know, you know students res, uh, you know were residing mm-hmm. in Riwaq or in Arwiqa or you know uh, mm-hmm. residents for from for each nationality, and there was a Riwaq Al Barnawi established in Al Azhar in. Uh, the mid uh, 13th century 1258 there was also a school for the pilgrim for pilgrims and um and students from borno called madras ibn Rashiq, which probably is one of the earliest to be established in cairo for the benefit of students and pilgrims from kanem borno who were going there i say student and pilgrims because actually the two were not a, a pilgrimage and uh, you know learning were very closely linked, and people did not go just to make the pilgrimage and come back, but it was an opportunity for them to, uh, to, to learn also. Mm. And many mm-hmm. uh, would uh, stay in Cairo for a few years and study there with major luminaries and then go to the Holy Land and then go back home. And that's how, uh, for example, the writings of Jalaluddin Asuyuti Mm -hmm. you know, are so uh, popular in in, uh, West Africa because many students from Timbuktu who who were uh, performing the pilgrimage stayed in Cairo. They studied with Asuyuti. They brought his books back to Timbuktu.
0: Similarly to the way that you're sketching out the trajectory of Asuyuti's um, works, could you locate a student, perhaps, of the madrasa that you tell us about, um, Sankore? In Timbuktu, like what would a day in the life of that student be before they traveled abroad, or perhaps who who lived out an entire life in West Africa?
2: Okay, one example that comes to mind is Ahmad Baba at Timbukti, who is a very uh, celebrated scholar of Timbuktu, who said that you know his library he had sixteen hundred books. Uh, in his library, and it was a small one of the smallest. And Ahmed Baba was, uh, you know, exiled to Morocco with a few uh, uh, ulama of Timbuktu, and uh, he resided there. He became a very uh, uh, famous uh, teacher. He taught uh, students who became very influential later. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the... History of Sudan, Abdurrahman Sadi actually uh, describes the quotes Ahmad Baba saying, you know, what he would uh, typically do in a day and what books that he would uh, he would learn. And basically, what they do is that when they wake woke up, they pray and after praying the Salat al-Fajr, they read the Quran, uh, and then after they Will go to study with with a master, but as you know, Timbuktu, uh, Sankore, or other, you know, uh, mosques, mosque colleges did not really operate, uh, you know, in the same way as the modern universities, mm-hmm. and uh, some some uh, some scholars obviously offered, uh, you know, lessons. They taught in in the mosque, but many also taught in their in their houses. Mm. And Ahmad Baba, when he uh, uh, discusses his, uh, you know, how and what he studied with his master, his master is named, uh, uh, one of his, uh, you know, ma- uh, masters is named Bagayugo Alwangari, who actually owned a library which still exists in Timbuktu, which is one of the major, you know, Timbuktu Libraries and how many works that he studied, you you know this really uh, this gives an idea of how thorough the curriculum was. And if you allow me to read just some sections of that, that
0: would be wonderful. Of, Thank of you.
2: that, he Gosh. said that I remained with him for ten years and completed with him the Mukhtasar of Khalil in my own readings and that of forty six others, some eight times. I completed with him the Muwatta. Of Imam Malik, reading it for comprehension, as well as the Tasheel of Ibn Malik, spending three years on it in an exhaustive analytical study. I also studied the Usul of As Subki with Al Mahalli's commentary exhaustively three times, the Alfiyah of Al Iraqi with the author's commentary, the Talhis Al Miftah with the average uh, commentary of Assad which I read twice or more, the Sughra of As-Sanusi, which is a uh, treaty of theology, and the latest commentary of Al-Jazairiyah, and the Hikam of Ibn Allah al iskandari with the commentary of Zarruq, the poem of Abu Mukri and the Hashimiyah on astronomy together with its commentary, and the Muqaddima of Al-Tajuri on the same subject, the Rajas of Al-Maghili on logic, the Khazrajiyah on prosody, with the commentary of Al-Sharif uh, al much of the Tuhfat al of Ibn Asim and the commentary on it by his son, all the above were in my own reading. I read exhaustively with the entire Fari' of Ibn, of, uh, Ibn Hajib and attended his classes similarly on the Tawdeeh, missing only from one uh, section. I also studied the Mudawana, uh, with the commentary of Abu al-Hassan Zarwili, the Shifa of Qadi Iyad, and, and he goes on and goes on to the, the many, 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 many books that you read. And if you look at the curriculum, you know, or the texts that were, you know, studied by students in West Africa, compare them With North Africa or other parts in the Muslim world, South Asia, you will see that it's you know they particularly were most of the texts were the same, which means that they really were participating in a large network of intellectual exchange. It's not that they were isolated, and uh, and you know some uh, people were coming to study also in Timbuktu, you know. Uh, some ulama of the Hijaz you know reported having studied in Timbuktu in the 16th century and realized that they you know uh, surpassed them in the mastery of 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 islamic jurisprudence so uh, basically the, the the day the day the, the the day is that they will learn the quran and, and and then after they will go to study with 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 masters either in mosques or in uh, in, uh, in in the houses of their the mosques m- most of these texts
1: Okay. And so these texts were in Arabic. And as we hear often in the stories of Ibn Batut and other travelers, Arabic was used widely as a scholarly language throughout the wider Islamic world, so to speak. But also there were several local languages that were also being developing wonderful literary traditions in Ajum script, this sort of Arabic script. So what was the role of language in West African Muslim intellectual production during this time?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, um, you are quite right that the Muslim people in Africa use Arabic, but they also use Ajami. They use the Arabic script in order to transcribe their languages. And there is attested usage of Ajami in 80 languages in Africa. So wow. there, is a, there is a recently published book about it, The Arabic Script in Africa Studies in the Use of a Writing System. Uh, which which was published a year ago or, or two years ago, and which shows that you know, uh, Ajami was widely used by the Muslim people. But you know, they, they used it uh, uh, because some scholars believed that knowledge was something to be shared.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: so they wrote in Arabic, but they also wrote in Ajami for the majority of people who did not know. Uh, who did not know uh, arabic so that they ex- they you know uh, explain complex not- theological notions to them in languages like fulfulde like hausa like wolof etc but the assumption of language hierarchy which inform most of the you know uh, literature on the ajami uh, mm-hmm. in africa might be actually uh, wrong because they also produce fine uh, literature in in uh, in 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 ajami for example there there are whole entire exegesis of the quran written in 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 wolof or in hausa etc in ajami so it's not just it's not that ajami you know was just used to uh explain you know Complex notion in a very simple way mm-hmm. and destined to people who de- who are not learning. Maybe I to think it was equally used, yeah. for, you know, for scholars in order to, you know, uh, to, to 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 produce very com- very complex and sophisticated literature.
0: In your book, you also talk about another language hierarchy which uh, comes much later, which is then the addition of uh, French language institutions and other Western language institutions. Mm -hmm. What was the impact that um, European colonization and also 16th century political developments in West Africa had on this educational system? Uh,
2: The Europeans, you know, uh, have started to engage uh, Africa since the 16th century Mm -hmm. when they rose as naval powers. And they established trading posts in the coast, on the coast, on the Atlantic coast. and uh, But um, they occupied only 10% of the entire African mm-hmm. population until the late 19th century, which means that European influence was very, very limited uh, for centuries. They were just, you know, uh, present on the coast and they established some some schools. And the earliest school in West Africa was Fura Bay College, which was, uh, you know, uh, uh, created in uh, 1827. Mm-hmm. That was the first one. But before that, there were schools, so many, you know, colleges, Sankore, in Kano, in Kanemburno, in, in, in Pir, in Senegal, uh, in, uh, you know, am, among the Jula community, in other parts of the savannah and etc. But Fora Bay College was an island of uh, Western you know, uh, culture in an ocean of uh, Arabic and Islamic mm. erudition in the 19th century. But after colonial rule, this equation will be changed And Mm -hmm. Arabic language will be, I mean, will become less important than it was. Not that it was completely eradicated, but it became less important. Why? Because Europeans, uh, after colonizing Africa, and essentially, as far as West Africa is concerned, it is the British, the Portuguese, and and the French. They created their own school system based on, you know, European languages based on, you know, European epistemology and um, methods of uh, education, and, and they try to really undermine uh, the role of Arabic and, and, and Ajami. And even in many senses, uh, you know, about uh, literacy, people who uh, did not speak, who did not uh, learn, who did not know European languages were considered illiterate. Mm. After independence, after these countries became independent, you know, from the 60s, 1960s, Africans educated in European languages inherited political power. They, you know, continue to undermine uh, uh, Arabic and, you know, look down upon literates in Arabic, you know, because colonialism was not just uh, political, it was uh, as well, uh, you know, uh, intellectual because they Mm -hmm. tried to... uh, Sell the idea that Africa was backward; it was it didn't know uh, literacy before; it was just an oral continent, and uh, it was uh, savage. It needed to be saved from slavery, from so many other ills, and they presented uh, colonialism as a civilizing mission. Mm -hmm. So, and civilizing means to teach, uh, you know, to establish schools offering education in European languages and, and selling the ideas of enlightenment, of you know, uh, freedom, emancipation, of, uh, and, and, and all this uh, you know, somewhat conflicted with Islamic epistemology and uh, modes of knowledge transmission. And intellectuals educated in Arabic became marginalized, whereas before colonialism in almost half of West Africa Arabic was the language of instruction and also of administration in most Mm. of the uh, Muslim states Mm -hmm, that were mm -hmm. created before. But after uh, it was replaced by Portuguese, by French, by, uh, by, by, by English, so that, you know, Arab intellectuals became relegated to the bottom. Obviously, they still were present and tried to influence the debate, but they were... Uh, considerably marginalized uh, in the uh, post-colonial context. It seems colonial regimes,
1: time and again, like to deny literacy so they can deny agency, deny subjectivity of people, and act as if they can fill a blank or just remodel the civilization in their own image. Strangely enough, this neglect of the intellectual production of West Africa didn't end in the colonial period. In modern academia, we see that Middle Eastern studies and Islamic studies, as well as African studies both neglect West Africa often. It's either too Muslim or too African. It's as if complexity can't be handled. Mm-hmm. Why is that the case? Why is this field neglected? And how is your book an intervention in this?
2: Okay, if you allow me to uh, illustrate what you just said with an anecdote, you know, uh, of how really the division of labor in academia uh, makes very difficult you know, to understand uh, the history of erudition in in Africa. Mm -hmm. So, right. So currently uh, in the division of labor, uh, academic division of labor on Africa, you know, the continent is divided into two parts. One is North Africa, which is studied, you know, as part of the Arab world with the, you know, with the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sub-Saharan Africa which is considered Africa proper and studied within the framework of African studies. And uh, to illustrate this further, when I came uh, here at the DIV school, I was appointed to teach or to develop the field of Islam in Africa in, in, with particular reference to its intellectual history. Mm-hmm. When I came, I, the first course that I wanted to teach was entitled "Reading in the Islamic Archive of Africa," mm-hmm. so I needed to have books written by West African scholars for that course. I went to see the uh, librarian of the Divinity School to, you know, to ask that he uh, he orders those books. He said that um, he specialized in Christianity in Christianity and doesn't have the expertise to deal with Arabic books, but referred me to the librarian of the Middle East. Of North Africa here at Harvard, I went to see the librarian of Middle East and North Africa. He said that he specialized in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is not part of his, uh, you know, expertise. He referred me to the librarian of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. When I m- met her, she said, "Well, Arabic is not a Sub-Saharan African language unless, you know, if there is a, if there is a, if if there is a book with." Uh, Arabic and, uh, you know, another European language, she would order it, but just an Arabic book, he, uh, she, she cannot order it. So to solve the problem, the dean of the Divinity School offered some of his discretionary funds to, that would be used in order for me to, uh, to buy uh, the books that I needed to teach that course. That's a kind gesture, but it did not address the root of the problem. And, and up until now, you know there are I don't know so how many hundreds of books are r- written by West African intellectuals in Arabic that don't make their way to the Harvard Library mm. and this before me students working on African Islam were were faced facing the same problems and the same thing with the programming of the institutes uh, you know when you hear Center for As- African Studies. It means Center for Sub-Saharan African Studies. Mm. They exclude the Middle East and North Africa from their programming. Likewise, Center of Middle Eastern Studies exclude Sub-Saharan Africa from their programming, which means that the connections between these two regions, and particularly the role of the Arabic language, which really was a glue holding together these substantial parts of these regions, cannot be comprehended, cannot be understood, uh, you know within the current framework within the current division of labor. And I hope that my book, uh, you know, by highlighting the connections between the Sahara, North Africa and sub-Saharan Africa and the role of the Arabic language in the mm-hmm. second millennium, I think that I hope that it will you know uh, uh, give great awareness about these interconnections and that uh, you know th- there is a need really to transcend this area studies uh, you know uh, this old area studies division of labor in order to uh, to better understand uh, you know the history of uh, erudition in uh, in the african continent and if i may just add something about two uh, two decades or so ago there were two very influential books you know about the productions of knowledge in africa and on africa produced you know published by uh, two african philosophers one was a one was a professor here at harvard his name is kwame antony apia he wrote the book in my father's house and the other book was by valente mudimbe the invention of africa he's also a very prominent african philosopher i think based now in duke or stanford and these books were so influential that they were awarded what um, uh, the the prize of the melville the melville Herskovits for the best book about um, uh, Africa in English, you know. But if when I read th- those books, and that's how I started actually my research, I realized that you know the Islamic library was completely absent from that debate. Mm-hmm. So th- it was essentially you know very very Eurocentric, and that's what you know prompted me to you know uh, further research this.
0: Professor Khan, in your book, you really develop this concept of the Islamic library as an analytical concept, mm. as well as some of the other things you've mentioned today, including distinctions between Europhone and Arabophone mm. scholars. And I think in much of your book, you actually move beyond binaries like that, mm. including in your discussion of the multilingual aspects mm. of much Islamic education. Mm-hmm. Could you bring in, perhaps at this moment, uh, some of your own experiences in how, if that was also a provocation for you as you embarked on this scholarly production?
2: Yes. I was uh, born in my mother's side in a family of uh, scholar, and where, you know, there was a long tradition of uh, Islamic scholarship going back to, you know, uh, at least uh, three centuries, you know, and in uh, my mother's uh, family, men and women are educated. And men and, and, and actually w- women e- even teach more. You know, there are several areas, you know, where several uh, countries in which they are very, uh, m- my aunts are very active as, uh, you know, uh, Islamic uh, Teachers. So, but also I grew up in, a, in the capital of Dakar, which is very cosmopolitan. And there I was um, uh, sent to public school, you know, where I studied French. So uh, during my youth, I, my time was divided between Islamic, you know, going to the public, public school and also uh, in, at, when I come back at home to the Islamic school. So that I actually, there was not even time to rest. And I explained in the book that I never learned how to play soccer. (laughs) And like many of the... We'll play sometime. Yeah, I hope so. But now I'm too busy as a professor. (laughs) Because I grew up, you know, navigating between these two uh, environments. You know, I I was aware uh, that actually there existed two intellectual traditions. But one has been obscured which is the African Islamic intellectual by, uh, you know, colonial hegemonic discourses and racial stereotypes, you know, Mm -hmm. that Africans did not learn, did not know how to write before colonialism. Or because Senegal is 94% of the population is Muslim. So, and all Muslims, even if they go to public school, they will also do some Quranic studies, right. but they they did not know that you know most of those who were studying the Quran at home, you know, uh, or at some time in their lives, because we, we it's a very biased uh, country, it's a very practicing Muslim country. By the way, the Pew Forum on Public Life in 2010 conducted a survey about you know religiosity in in the Muslim world and even in the world, and and they ranked. Uh, countries according to, you know, how uh, religion was important to the life of the people. And Senegal came on top with 98% of uh, people saying that religion is very important in their lives. So which means that it's a very uh, religious country and people uh, learn. However, the majority of those who were educated in French schools did not know that there was a whole comprehensive system of education in Arabic not just limited to the quran because the study of the quran is really the basic and how to read the quran and write in arabic that's how you know uh uh, islamic studies start but then once they memorize the quran or part of it or a large part of it then they go to study other disciplines but they were uh, they were unaware of those other disciplines so i was fortunate enough to be born in a family where they you know i was i received the sound islamic training at home but also uh, western education you know and culminating with the phd that i received in france in political science you know so that, that that's uh, you know uh, how i i i i receive both education but so up until now the the two systems are divided and i think that is very very uh, very unfortunate and there is of course also knowledge in african uh, languages and i think it's very important to bridge the gap between these uh, these different traditions uh, in in africa because the system of education has been in crisis for so long mm-hmm. and needs to be fixed and, uh, and and there are several you know intellectual trends that don't talk to each other and, uh, and I think that is a real problem. And, and we really must create space for all intellectuals to, you know, to be recognized and for all the, the intellectual traditions in Africa to thrive. You know, Ali, Mazru, Ali Mazrui, the famous uh, political scientist and thinker mm-hmm. who passed away just recently, was saying it was, you know, he used the word triple heritage of Africa. That there is African traditional uh, culture, religion, Western education, or Western culture, and Islamic culture, Arabic, Arab Islamic culture. So th- these are the three, uh, you know, civilized, mm-hmm. civilizational heritage, and we need to, you know, uh, take the best of all this. But the system as it is now is too uh, fragmented, and uh, and and mm-hmm. and and that's I think one of the reasons of the of the crisis of education in Africa. Thank you so much for
1: everything, Dr. Khan. Again, this is Beyond Timbuktu by Dr. Osman Khan.
0: Listeners can find more information about this topic in a bibliography on our website provided by Professor Khan. Thank you for listening. Until next time.
2: Thank you very much.